Dr. Dean Radin is Senior Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and Adjunct Faculty in the Department of Psychology at Sonoma State University. He is the author of Conscious Universe. He is the author of Entangled Minds, Heritopia. I tell you this because he's our guest today. That's right. That's right. You wanted him. We got him. I interview him. Here he is to talk about Psy Research, the one, the only, Dean Radin. Paratopia, please welcome to the program. He is the probably the one person we haven't had on the show that has been most requested. That's right. It's Dr. Dean Radin. Uh, Dr. Radin, thank you for coming on the show. My pleasure to be here. I want to get sort of an overview of you and your thinking before we really dive into this ESP stuff. Uh, you're the author of Conscious Universe and Entangled Minds. And uh, I had read in your, your bio that you uh, got into this, got into study of psi phenomena, uh, because you were interested as a child um, just in how the mind could be more than, well, I guess what society was, was telling you it was. Mm-hmm. What was that journey like, going from that into being a musician for a good chunk of your life uh, professionally and then into becoming a scientist, studying this stuff and writing books about it? What was that? How did that happen for you? I think it's difficult for uh, each of us to objectively deconstruct somebody else's life. Uh, that's probably a job for a biographer more than an autobiographer. I say this because from my perspective, uh, everything, everything seemed to pretty much flow in a way that seemed perfectly natural. In other words, uh, ha- ha- there, wasn't, there were no dramatic um, mind-shattering events that occurred along the way, which deflected me from a, a direction that I thought I might have otherwise taken, but rather that virtually everything that I've done always seemed to lead very naturally to the next step. And so I think if you had asked me as a child, what would I end up doing as an adult? I I might have guessed at something. Uh, but if someone said, well, you, you might end up studying the the powers and potentials of the human mind, I would have thought, well, okay, that sounds pretty good. Was there at any point uh, in your research, especially early on, where you thought maybe uh, this could be accounted for um, just in terms of basic biology or delusion? Well, some of it was undoubtedly influenced by my family. I I grew up in an artistic family. My father is a sculptor, uh, but we also uh, were a family that strongly valued education. So my father has five degrees in English and philosophy and law, but worked as a commercial artist. My brother is a dentist, but his primary passion is teaching drama. And my mother uh, worked on a as a occupational therapist on a psychiatric ward. So we we've all been interested in in art and music and also in education and science and the humanities, kind of all rolled into one. And I, th- I think it may have been the exposure both to the both to art and science as a young person that led me to see that they're, they weren't quite as incompatible as, as it's sometimes um, thought, especially in the academic world. And when, just in terms of uh, bringing this to the public, what has changed for you over the years? Are, are people more... Um 
Are they they more likely to um, not need an explanation or a bunch of statistics thrown at them to to believe that this this could be real? Or you know, has that changed? That dynamic changed? I think very few people have ever believed in psychic phenomena based on statistics or or based on intellectual arguments. Uh, most people believe in anything based on their experience and either their personal experience or someone that they trust uh, who who explains something to them that they, they could accept. Now, one thing which, of course, is different in the modern world is that we can't experience everything. So I accept uh, a lot about astronomy, for example, without knowing very much about it because I have a certain degree of faith that the people who are experts at that are telling the best story that they have about astronomy today. And the same goes is true for dozens of other disciplines. None of us can be experts. So in today's world, you, you can believe a certain amount of things based on your personal experience, but we also we have to believe uh, lots of other things that people tell us where we assume that their experience is correct as well. When it comes to unusual experiences, like psychic phenomena, uh, it's it's still somewhat at odds with uh, what what the picture that science paints of how the world is supposed to work, and so that's what creates the controversy that there that, that there's a clash between what scientists say and what people's experience are. But what I do know is that even among scientists, that uh, for those who have had personal experiences which they interpret as psychic, they don't need the statistics in order to believe. For those scientists who have never had such an experience and don't know anyone who claims such an experience, then no amount of statistics will ever be sufficient. Yeah, so that, that was sort of going to be my next question, which is do they afford you the same opportunity that you would afford the astronomer and just say, well, uh, we haven't experienced this, but we assume that he's telling us the truth to the best of his ability or that these facts hold to, you know, the best standard that they can. Is that generally the case, or uh, you must meet resistance all over the place, I would imagine? I would say generally it is the case. Most academics are pretty tolerant and humble and realize that, that while we know a few things, we're not really as smart as we think we are. Uh, there are always a minority of scientists uh, who strongly believe that the world is a certain way. I find that more often in theorists than in empiricists. Uh, and the theorists who have a, hold a very strong view of the world uh, are essentially acting in the same way that uh, a person who is a fundamentalist uh, theist would. That they, they hold worldviews very strongly and they will fight tooth and claw to defend that worldview uh, independently of whether it's actually true or not. Of course, they believe it's true, but that's not what science is about. Uh, so yes, there's resistance, and the resistance is sometimes very vocal, but I believe it comes from a small minority of scientists and also a minority of fundamentalists. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that, uh, that you've ruled out uh, in terms of phenomena? Is there anything that you would say, well, that we've tested that enough and it just doesn't hold that that could be true, that that could be happening? I would say that the... Uh, I, I never want to rule anything out completely because it, it means I'm 100% sure about something and, and that's not the way science works. What I can say is that we have different levels of confidence 
in in reported phenomena. Uh, and at the, the far end, where there, where I don't have much confidence, are things like levitation, or things like yogic flying, or invisibility, or a number of things of that sort. These are all macroscopic, um, huge effects that are sometimes reported. Uh, certainly, is reported in the yogic lore. Uh, and when we've tried on a few occasions to witness something like that under even moderately controlled conditions. We either don't see it at all, or we see something and it's never repeated. So our confidence then in such stories is very low, as compared to things which are not quite as dramatic, like telepathy, for example, uh, but which are relatively easy to demonstrate in the laboratory and have been done many, many times. Uh, well, the, the people who try to demonstrate, for instance, levitation, do they, uh, do they come to you and they say, look, I can do this, and then they can't? No. This is more... Uh, cases where there are uh, meditative traditions, like the TM tradition, which for a while was promoting the idea of yogic flying, which involves levitation. And so I've seen some of the best yogic flyers in the world, and I was not convinced that what I was seeing was any form of levitation. Right. Yeah, the bouncing up and down thing, right? <laughs> right. So, okay, ESP is uh, something that you can you can prove or, or demonstrate uh, repeatably in a lab. So why isn't that the end of that discussion? Well, the principal reason is that we don't have a theory yet that could explain why mind and matter interact. That's really the crux of it. Uh, it is not true, by the way, that there's no theory. There, the, within quantum mechanics, for example, the quantum measurement problem is all about the interaction between mind and matter. Uh, it's not the only interpretation of that, but it is a respectable interpretation. So, you know, there we have a very well-accepted physical theory which has a door cracked open towards something like mind-matter interaction. Mm-hmm. It's even a, a larger door cracked open with quantum field theory, but that's it's more complex and even fewer people understand that. But when it comes to the to the general public, and I include in that most scientists, because none of us are experts in all all different disciplines, uh, a, a scientist would say, "Well, I can't I, I can't see any reason. There's no conceivable reason why one person's uh, intentions in one location could possibly interact with somebody else's body, for example, as in distant prayer, or." how one person's thoughts can be received by somebody else at a distance. They, they, they're, to them, it's inconceivable. Inconceivable means that it is not within the, the toolkit of ways that they imagine that the world is stuck together. And I think this is because uh, most people and most scientists included retain a view of the world which is essentially classical physics. So they retain the common sense view of the world from the 17th century. And they either don't know or they don't care about the fact that this is not the prevailing view of physics. This is not how physics sees the world today. If they don't know about that, then of course, they, well, of course it would be inconceivable because in, in Newton's time, spooky action at a distance was forbidden. Well, it's no longer forbidden, but it takes knowing a little bit more than one tiny slice of, of the world. Well, wouldn't another problem be that, that we can't really even define what mind is? That is an important point, yes. 
if we if we don't know what consciousness is and we're still struggling with what the nature of mind is, then to talk about mind-matter interaction means that at least one side of that equation is a giant mystery. But on the other hand, while we don't have a good scientific explanation for consciousness yet, it is probably the one and the only thing which we have intimate knowledge of, and everything else is an inference. So that's it is a major puzzle. But the one thing that we absolutely know, namely our own awareness, is also the one thing that we have absolutely no explanation of. So, so yes, since that seems to be involved in things like perception and mind and intention, which is where psychic phenomena live, then, then we have a problem. Uh, and what do you do with just sort of these larger questions, I think, that, that, that loom in the air? Like I, I was listening to you talk um, in an interview about uh, experiments using um, sensory deprivation chambers. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have sensory deprivation and you're having something happen that is larger than you, then what are you at that point? What is the person, I mean, do you, do you get into those sorts of questions? What, who is the person witnessing or funneling past and future events through ESP um, right. at the point where thought is now not an issue, emotion isn't an issue, and your senses aren't an issue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you don't need sensory deprivation to, to get into that question. Uh, if telepathy is true, and if clairvoyance is true, then our notion of what we mean by the self, the small s, the thing that you call I, is probably mistaken. It's a kind of an illusion. So from a neuroscience point of view, they would agree that a neuroscientist would say, yes, your sense of self is an illusion that's created as an epiphenomena of the activity of the brain. What I would say is that the epiphenomena is much worse than, than, the, epif- than, than the activity of the brain because... what you think of as yourself is actually extended through space and through time. And that immediately raises notions like, well, then who who am I? Am I a collective? I think I feel like I'm inside myself most of the time, but if I have a telepathic experience or I use clairvoyance, clearly I'm not just inside my head, and that no longer seems like it's uh, completely tied to the physical brain. Uh So... This doesn't necessarily imply that, there, that, that we have a spirit or a soul or some kind of non-physical existence. It may imply, in fact, I think this is what it does imply, that our notion of, of what we call material and physicality is simply a very limited case of, uh, of a form of existence that we don't have names for yet. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it seems that there might be this thing called being in which all things exist. And so it, in being would be sort of that non-local state, I guess, and then we're local points within that non-local state, no? Maybe. Maybe being and awareness are concepts which don't quite fit into uh, a, a common-sense physical world, and they, they exist beyond it in some way. Unfortunately, what I just said to some scientists will sound like I'm, I'm talking about religious stuff, and I'm not. I'm, I'm talking about simply ways of trying to use the current language and concepts that we have to talk about ways of being or ways of awareness that really are not locked into three dimensions and time, but are somehow unbound by that. Yeah. Well, wouldn't you think that, that um, it, if that were fundamentally the case of us, that things like religion uh, and even 
now the you know quantum uh, physics theories are in their own ways us talking to ourselves and telling us what we are, and some of that gets bastardized, and some of that um, is, I guess, pure for lack of a better term in in science. Um, but it's really just us sort of talking to ourselves and saying, "Look, this is what you are." I, I would put it more along the lines of uh, we tell stories. And the, some of the stories are more formalized into theories, and some are less formalized in, in um, things like religious mythology. But the story we're, we aim with the stories to try to describe what we think reality is and our, our role in reality. Uh, sometimes science goes a little bit too far in one direction and says, no, this really is the way things are. But ultimately, any theory is really just a story. Sometimes the stories have pretty good evidence that the story is real, but theories change all the time. So to see a, a theory, even a quantum mechanics as an example, as anything more than a story, is is starting to believe too much. It, it starts ending up looking like dogma, and that's where scientists get, I think, off track. Do you think that there, there's got to be a, a point where you hit a wall with um, with rational thinking and, and, and that necessarily you have to then become transrational? That you actually uh, have to enter yeah. into the experiment in some way. You have to sort of, in order to see what's over that wall, you've got to sort of go over that wall yourself. Well, you're right. There's an assumption that the only way to know is through reason, through, through rational knowledge, and that's clearly not the case. Because, of the, the like, I work at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. The word noetic means to know, but it means to know in all possible ways reason being one of them. And others are things like intuition and insight and mystical ways of knowing and psychic ways of knowing and religious epiphanies and on and on and on. So there's both rational ways and there's also non-rational ways of knowing. And notice I don't say irrational, but simply non-rational ways of knowing. And so and it, it makes a lot of sense to me that if you're trying to describe something which is which seems inconceivable, like the nature of our own awareness, that if you try to do that purely rationally, you're going to get stuck. Because you, the, the, the problem is much, much bigger than, than can be grasped by rationality alone. And if you look at, at what um, some of the most famous scientists had said about the, the uh, approach of science um, and, and what, what is possible to figure out versus reason versus intuition, you find basically every famous scientist you ever thought of or, or ever knew. Einstein is the one that comes to mind most frequently, and he explicitly said that the, the aim of, this, of a scientist is to figure out through induction and deduction, through reason, the laws of the universe. But you can't get to all of them by reason alone. You have to also rely on intuition. And so intuition is then not reason. It's not rational, and yet it's an extremely important component in coming to a closer sense of what is real. Mm -hmm. It's funny, because I'm, I'm hearing my, my friend Teoksen Ghost Horse, who is a, a Lakota speaker, um, just saying, well, what's important about proving any of this? The Lakota have known this forever, you know? Um, mm -hmm. How would you answer something like that, where where to the Western mind, all of this looks like maybe uh, new data, new information. Now we're going to prove something that indigenous peoples perhaps um, already have been living with. 
Well, you get the same story from most religious traditions. I, I spent a month in India earlier this year, and the Indian philosophy basically has the same story. We've known this for thousands of years. And so what's the big deal? I would say that the big deal is that no tradition has the full story. It's not possible for any one tradition to have the full story because everyone's always enculturated, and culture creates blinders. Mm-hmm. And an easy way to see that is we, we all get very impressed by our iPhones and other technology. And that technology is an expression of reality, and it's quite effective. Uh, and it shows. It's a way of demonstrating then in no uncertain terms that we, that we, meaning Western science, have learned something new about reality. We're able to twist it in certain ways and do things with it, whereas uh, ancient civilizations perhaps could not do that. And so what the, the difficulty is that we get so enthralled by our toys that we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater and, and don't pay enough attention to ancient wisdom, which is telling us something about other important things. So, but I try to encourage both scientists and the indigenous people to do, and I think many, of course, understand this, that we, what we really need to do is create a synthesis where we take the best of the best from every culture, and we try to bootstrap ourselves into an even better understanding of the way that the world works. And that may be a world with iPhones or or beyond an iPhone, but it would also be one where there's a whole lot more compassion and tolerance in the world because we've learned a little bit more wisdom as well. Mm -hmm. And where does uh, DMT fit into your research, or or does it? You you mean the, the psychoactive drug DMT? Yes. Well, I haven't done any experiments with psychedelics because, among other things, it's illegal unless you get special permission. Well, just the fact uh, that we produce it in our own bodies. I mean, does that do anything for you? Does that tell you something? Well, at, in that sense, I think that, uh, we, of course, we produce a lot of psychoactive uh, elements in our bodies. But even thinking of it as an, a, an external thing you might take, a synthetic form, or even a natural form like a mushroom, uh, those are, I think, important because they demonstrate, uh, usually in a very forceful way, like hitting yourself over the head with a brick, that there are many, many ways of perceiving the world. And I mean, I, I pay a lot of attention to the fact that the recent studies using psilocybin, for example, in people with serious illnesses, uh, most of the people who take those psychoactive drugs afterwards rate the experience as one of the most important in their entire life. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's because they get a, an in-your-face experience of reality which is so dramatically different than our ordinary state of awareness uh, they, that it's, their, it's no longer their belief about things, but it's their personal experience, and that is always the strongest driver of, of the way you perceive the world. And so while I, I don't like to, to advocate people taking drugs, I do see that there's a value, especially for scientists who, who may be, start to believe and fall in love with their theories a little bit too much, uh, that there would be a value in taking psilocybin or LSD or one of the other psychedelics to help push what you think you can believe in mm-hmm. by by an experience itself, a direct experience. But in terms of, uh, do, you, do you pay attention to, for instance, Dr. Rick Strassman's work or uh, Dennis McKenna's work? 
and to the, and um, Terrence McKenna as well. Right. Yeah, I've, cool. I've I've listened to most of what all of them have written, and, and many of Terrence's uh, talks and speeches, and I've always been a big fan of it. So let me ask you then. Great, <laughs> that, that helps me. Uh, in terms of, I mean, it seems like what they're saying is. You got the the pineal gland that uh, may be some sort of tuner or receiver uh, to be able to see either what what more around you or into other worlds or something along those lines. Is is that something that uh, you you must in your experiments you must have people hooked up to um, MRIs and things like that? I mean, do do people does that light up for people when they go into um, I don't know meditation states? Does it light up for people when they are um, Performing telekinetic activity uh, does is it a you're factor talking, in your research that the pineal? You're talking specifically about the pineal. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, the pineal is is pretty deep in the brain, so even with a functional MRI, it and it's also small, so it's it's really really difficult with current neuroimaging techniques to see what is happening in the pineal gland as opposed to things around it. My guess is that it it's not as important as some of the lore may have said. Uh, when, when we look at using either uh, high-density EEG or functional MRI, when people are in ecstatic states and other meditative states, the, the whole brain is involved. Hmm. You know, the, the, the old saying is that we, we only use 10% of our brain. Well, that's not true. We use 100% of our brain all the time. What the phrase is talking about is uh, what capacities are we using, or what potential capacities are we using? And there, we probably are using a small potential, a small proportion of our potential. But the brain, most of the time, is actually fully engaged in keeping your body alive and in perception and cognition and all the rest of it. There will be a certain amount that we can learn by brain function, mm-hmm. and that will only take us so far. Yeah. Well, you, you've also said that that creative people uh, and, and artistic people uh, are more prone to have uh, ESP-type experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's why? Do you think it's because they, they are using uh, more of their brain or the non-rational part of their brain uh, more? Yeah. Not more of their brain, but they perhaps use different portions of the brain to a greater extent. So I don't want to get too brain-centric here because while the, the, it, we, we wouldn't be having the discussion without our brains... Uh, I think there's also reason to expect that our under our current understanding of brain function is not it's it's really primitive. It's new. It, it's you know there we we get seduced by the beautiful pictures that we can create through a functional MRI, for example. But we really haven't advanced very much beyond neural correlates. We we find correlations between brain function brain function and uh, our thoughts and actions, but. We're just beginning to learn, for example, that each individual neuron of of tens of billions of neurons, each one is probably much, much smarter than we had ever previously thought. And that means that what what is actually going on in the brain for what we can image at the moment is so crude as as to be like painting with numbers. It's, It's just way too crude to begin to get at the kinds of questions that neuroscientists would really like to understand. So given the crudeness of our ability to image what's going on and to understand the, the interactions and all the rest of it, 
especially when you combine it with evidence for ESP, it means that we're we like to be prideful of uh, of how much we think we know, but it's like in many disciplines. The more you begin to think about what is left to learn, the more you become more and more humble in what we actually think we've figured out. Mm-hmm. One assumes that th- that this might be a two way street. Then, once someone has mastered telepathy, um, have you seen any evidence of channeling being real, or have you done any experiments of? One person trying to influence another person. Anything along those lines? Uh, although they had three three different strains of thought in that one question. <laughs> Sorry. First of all, nobody nobody has mastered telepathy. Uh, some people are better than others at it. Most of the time, it's spontaneous, even in, in people who are really good. So that's not something yet that it appears to be able to be mastered in the sense that you can turn it on and off at will. There are certainly people who, um, and uh, schizophrenia is probably the best example, who feel that they can be 100% telepathic, but there isn't any evidence that I'm aware of that suggests that uh, when you take that person into the laboratory that they do any better than anybody else. So their sense of 100% accuracy is probably delusional. So that's so much for perfect ESP. Well, what do you do with um, testimony regarding, I don't know, like the Seth material, you know, Seth speaks, that sort of thing, or channeled alleged right. alien material or, or something along those lines? Is that something that you deal with at all? Yes. So channeling is different. I think channeling is not telepathy, at least not in the sense of thinking of it as uh, a, a human mind and another human mind. Uh, channeling is always going to be biased by the person through whom the information is flowing. And there are plenty of channels throughout history and even contemporarily uh, that there's enough similarity in the information that's being channeled to accept that some of that's coming from somewhere else. Uh, it might be deeply embedded in each of our own unconscious or maybe it is coming from independent entities somewhere else, or our higher selves, or other metaphysical concepts that we can use. Ultimately, we don't know where that information comes from. There, there's enough uh, there's enough strangeness associated with channeling. For example, uh, in the case of Bridie Murphy, is one of the better ones where a a book is dictated and it's dropped off at one point when the person is tired and goes to sleep, and they wake up the next day, and it starts off with the next word, and and it's dictated perfectly. And so at this point, it seems like this is beyond the ability of somebody to fake. It would be very difficult for someone to just rattle off an entire book and have it more or less perfect from the first shot. Mm -hmm. So, So then where does that come from? Well, maybe somebody who's an autistic savant Maybe they could do that, except that I don't think there are very many channelers that I know who are autistic savants. They're either ordinary people or, in some cases, they've been academics who just surprisingly one day they start speaking such stuff. So there's a huge mystery in where the information comes from. Uh, I think it's probably the case that not all channels are what they appear to be. Some people probably are delusional. Uh, others find that it's a good shtick, and so you can make a, a decent living being a channel, even though they're not. Uh, others probably fool themselves into thinking that they're doing something which 
In fact, they're not. So, of course, this this is true across the board when it comes to unusual mental phenomena. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I get probably one or two emails every single day from people who claim to do everything from being 100, 100% perfect precognition uh, ability to being able to stop tornadoes with their mind. Some of them, I suspect, have something real going on. Most of them don't. And so part of my job then is to figure out, well, what should I pursue given that a lot of such uh, claims are probably not true and it takes resources to be able to investigate things. So I generally will study things in the laboratory which are easier to study than something like uh, channeling or something like someone being able to stop a tornado just because those things take much, much more time and effort than simpler things that I can do in the lab. Mm-hmm. So do you think that the case for remote viewing is made by men like Joe McMonagall, do you think that that's overblown or overstated? No. And in that case, it's because I know Joe pretty well and I've, I've seen Joe in action. And so my firsthand experience tells me that uh, what, what Joe says is actually correct. And it's, it's more simply than what he says because he's been tested many, many times, including in controlled experiments. And what he does within an experimental context and what he does in a, outside of the experiment are pretty close to the same. And so there's a difference where somebody might claim that they could levitate, for example, but then either they can never catch it on film or they catch it and it doesn't look suspicious or the bottom line is they can't do it under controlled conditions. But by contrast, some remote viewers, not all certainly, but some can do the same level of high functioning in a controlled environment and also in, a, in non-controlled environments. So that's, that's why I have confidence in remote viewing, although, as I said, it, certainly not everybody has the same level of talent. Well, do you, do you put the same stock in remote viewing things uh, that are landmarks, for instance, at a distance, as you do predictions uh, for future events? Because I know I've read Joe McMonagall's book, uh, and I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but you know, it's mostly especially the second half, is, is all predictions, and he gives dates for when certain things are going to occur, and mm-hmm. uh, I can't think of any of them that have occurred. So, what, what, I mean, what do you do with that versus what you're seeing him do? The, in uh, precognition, what is, um, what is reasonably clear is that the farther out the prediction goes, the less accurate it is. And so there's at least two reasons to, and this is based on empirical data, so the two possible reasons for that happening is that the uh, future is probabilistic. It's only tendencies to occur, and it doesn't actually become fixed until it does occur. So the, prob- the future may be probable, or that uh, precognition is not very accurate. Just like clairvoyance usually is not really that accurate. It's accurate enough to be able to show it in the laboratory, and occasionally you get a wildly successful result. And even in remote viewing, occasionally you'll get a wildly accurate precognition. A case like uh, Joe's uh, description of the Typhoon submarine is a good example where uh, a, a hidden object in a building turned out to be this massive submarine that he correctly described using remote viewing. And then he correctly described what would happen to that submarine over the next nine months. And it turned out to be correct. 
but that doesn't happen all the time. So, as I said, it either means that the nature of the perception is simply too variable to be highly reliable, or, and I think this is this is also true, that the future is not fixed. The way we think of events unfolding in time is that at any given moment, everything is probabilistic. Some are much more probable than others, but the further you go out, you can think of this now as a, a branching structure. At each moment in time, there's a new branch, a probabilistic branch that things can go this way or that, and it doesn't take long, hours perhaps, for the future to become so uh, such a chaotic mess of probabilities that there's very few things that you can predict with high confidence. And that, and that may be why the why precognition, uh, especially ones that try to go out hundreds of years in advance or in the future, it may not be very probable anymore because things have changed. Okay. So we sort of did an, an overview of some of these things. Let, let's get into the science-y stuff. Um, entangled minds, uh, you're talking about quantum entanglement. Can you tell us what that is and tell us how it applies to all that we're talking about here? Quantum entanglement refers to a mathematical prediction uh, based on quantum theory, on the equations themselves, in which if two or more particles interact and the equations used to describe the interacting uh, particles is now a more complex equation, which includes a component which talks about both or refers to both of the components and that part of the equation never goes away. And so two photons or two electrons or two somethings interact and they go on their separate way, and the equations predicted that this common element never, went away, never goes away anymore. Well, that's quite different than in the classical world where you can imagine things are like billiard balls. They smack into each other, but they go on their separate way, and now they're independent. Quantum entanglement said that things that interact are no longer independent. They're related in some way. And so for at least 30 years after the development of that concept using the equations, uh, it was thought that this was yet one more example of equations that had that predicted weird stuff that probably wasn't true. It's like a quirk of the mathematics, perhaps. But then starting in the 1960s, when John Bell, the Irish physicist, uh, developed Bell's theorem, uh, or Bell's inequalities, it's sometimes called, uh, he found a way to test to see whether or not this strange entanglement idea, which Einstein called spooky action at a distance, whether that was in fact true and testable. And so the experiments have been done starting in the 1970s, and by now uh, most physicists uh, fully accept that entanglement is a real phenomenon. In fact, it's gone beyond the laboratory and is going into technology already. And what it means is that, uh, at least at an elementary particle level, that uh, things interact and they're no longer independent. But if you push this idea a little bit, it means that when you, you try to understand the nature of matter and energy, and you, you keep, as, as science likes to do, it sort of breaks down stuff and looks at it in deeper and deeper levels. When you get deep enough, you find that our whole concept of independent objects that exist not only independently of themselves, but also exist independently in time, that that breaks down, and it's no longer true. 
and it creates a, a different picture of the fabric of reality where the, the new fabric, this deep physical fabric of reality, is holistic. And, it, and it's completely interconnected both through space and time. And that seems to be borne out again and again by every experiment that anyone has been able to devise so far. And given that that's the case, and it it seems that if if we if our experience, if if you imagine that experience uh, comes out of the very small, out of the microscopic world, if we could experience that directly, then the nature of that experience would be very similar to what we call psychic and mystical experience. Because both of those experiences are saying that while common sense tells me that things appear to be separate, that's not what these phenomena tell us. The phenomena telling us that things are not really so separate, and not separate in time or separate in space. So that's the somewhere between an analogy and a metaphor that I use to, uh, in the phrase entangled minds, to show how at a deeper level of physics than what we tend to see in our everyday world, psychic phenomena begin to make a lot of sense. It seems like we're going from uh, autonomous individuals into, no, things work in relationship, into, no, actually everything is one thing, this one energy, or, or however you want to describe that. If, if that gets proven, then does that change us? I mean, are we as a species finished being individuals? Well, you know, in science fiction, the idea of the hive mind, like in the Borg, this is seen as something which uh, is repulsive, and we have to reject with, with every ounce of strength to retain our individuality. And so there's something about being human, which uh, probably through shaping by evolution, where uh, we have to survive at all costs, and that also means our ego has to survive at all costs. And it allows us to survive perfectly well, but it has also created an enormous amount of suffering in the world through ego. I mean, the, the whole issue of tribalism and us over them and all that, that comes about because of our sense of being separate. If we moved into a world where we actually knew, and not, not just intellectually, but we, through personal experience, we knew that uh, we, we were connected in some important way, then I suspect that it would lead to something like a hive mind. I mean, if you remember in all of the movies about the, the uh, invasion of the body snatchers, and including even in the Borg and, and Star Trek, that from inside their point of view, everything is perfectly fine. It's like the way, it's the best way it could be. There's no war, there's no conflict, things are efficient. You know, so doesn't that sound pretty good? And yet the way that the stories are written is that this is the worst possible thing that could happen and you have to resist it. So, you know, we're still at a, maybe at a stage in the evolution of our species where we still have to resist even the concept of this. But I kind of suspect that evolution keeps going and, and the way the science keeps advancing, that we will find that there is a kind of a hive mind. Uh, it, we probably won't end up calling it that, but that that is a much, much more efficient way of being. Uh, and what it would be like from our individual point of view, I don't know. Maybe there is no individuality anymore. Maybe it becomes Gaia. You know, Gaia as a planetary awareness. Maybe that's what we identify with. I, of course, I don't know that any of this is true, but I'm, I we're, we're just shooting around lead... some ideas here. But let, let me ask you this: uh, 
because now this just came to mind here. Uh, if, if that happens, if we reach a point where we become a hive mind or a oneness mind or something like that, then at that point, do we then realize that time didn't exist, that, that it was really a bunch of individuals, like almost like tentacles or tendrils, sort of moving our way up to this oneness thing that was always the case? So in other words, the oneness was always the case, and we were the things that were, you know, living in the, the delusional state of, of believing that it wasn't the case. And so it's the oneness thing that's actually informing us, uh, in, in a sense. I don't know if this is making any sense. But that essentially that, well, that time isn't, isn't going from, from backwards to forwards. Uh, it just appears that way. And once you hit the oneness wall, <laughs> uh, you, you see that that's, that that was never happening, that time was never happening. There never was... Uh, well, what, you're, what you're describing is very close to a classic mystical experience. That's how people describe the mystical experience. It's the sense of complete unity, where time is an illusion, where you realize that everything was was working together, in a sense, to create this crystalline form, which now understands beyond the limitations of space and time. That's the classic mystical experience, forms the basis of most religions. It's the basis of Eastern philosophy and lots of Western esoteria. Uh, that, that, if that's true, and it, it seems to me that that is a not unreasonable inference for, for where we may be headed, uh, then the answer is yes. Yeah, so the, we achieve one mind, and at that stage you have a, a very radical way of understanding things, which is very, very different than the way that we live our daily lives. So it sounds like, uh, from what you're saying, that, that maybe that the ego and the self, you know, these are products of uh, maybe evolution or, or products of um, having to survive the world. Once we're out of that mode of having to survive the world, which seems to be what we are building up when we, you know, enter these realms of the mind, be it through rationality or, or any of the stuff we're talking about, I mean... You know, food is barely an issue. Shelter is barely an issue. I mean, not in third world countries, obviously, but I mean, the the modality of it is there to, to be able to not have to worry about those things so much. Um, the things that the ego might have been there to protect us and, and help us uh, through to survive. If that all goes away, then does the ego go away? I mean, is that is that what we're getting to when we inevitably, do you think? Well, perhaps the ego uh, transcends the individual and becomes a collective ego. I mean, this is what Carl Jung was interested in, about the idea of a collective unconscious. It's like a giant ego, maybe the size of the planet. Uh, but to, I can answer your original question a little bit easier by saying, what difference would it make if people believed that consciousness was something important and meaningful, as opposed to what the neurosciences say about consciousness, which is a, a kind of a meaningless side effect of brain activity. So a colleague of mine is a social psychologist, and he did an experiment where he took a passage out of my book, uh, The Conscious Universe, which is talking about maybe consciousness is really important. It's something vital and fundamental. And then took a passage out of one of the popular neuroscience books, which basically says that you're nothing but a pack of neurons, that, that there's no inherent meaning to anything, and life is basically pointless. And he gave this to students in a class. So one, some group of students got from my book, and some got uh, the what I would call a nihilistic statement. Um, 
and then gave them uh, the opportunity to play a computer game where they would win some money, but the computer game intentionally had a flaw in it that would allow you to cheat. And so as the experiment was seeing, what does, what does the effect of priming you with these two different worldviews, one where consciousness matters and one where it doesn't, how does that affect your moral sense? And what he found was that uh, people who were given the nihilistic view, they cheated more. Because from that point of view, life is meaningless. There's no point to anything. So why not cheat? But people who got the passage out of my book where they saw that consciousness matters, they didn't cheat. Because they saw that maybe there really is something important that's going on. So this is a very simple classroom demonstration that the way that we think about what consciousness is could have huge consequences in terms of how we behave with each other and towards what we should think is as as laudable goals like like being peaceful with each other. Mm-hmm. But do you think that those are, are relative to the to time and that, that once again, once we get to that oneness thing that, that it's an objective reality that we all tap into the same way and we all experience the same way? Or do you think that there's still a flavor of um, our individual or or even cultures um, that, that would influence how we exist in that state? Well, that, of course, I don't know. I, I have no way of even guessing. I, I know what I would wish, but that's that's irrelevant. Uh, I think what before we ever get to even a stage which is where we can even glimpse that, we have to get beyond where we are now, which is still very heavily tribalistic and nationalistic and all the rest. So one of the reasons why uh, I think that at least studying the nature of consciousness is important is because it does change our, our sense of meaning and purpose, uh, and that changes the way that we act, and that changes our politics and our business and everything else. So... It, it's often said, for example, that there's plenty of money and food available so nobody in the world has to starve, and yet people are starving all the time. And why is that? Well, a lot of it comes out of this idea that the you and your people are more important than somebody else and somebody else's people, and so you have to hoard your stuff. Well, maybe not. You know, if, if Maybe we're not more important than somebody else, and maybe we don't really need to hoard stuff. Uh, and that it basically comes down to a kind of a, a moral decision. And the moral decision at least has a component of it in our understanding of who and what we think we are. And that has to do with, at least a good piece of it, has to do with what we think consciousness is. I want to go on a slightly different track in, uh, in our final minutes here. Do you, uh, do you deal with abduction research at all, alien abduction? Not so much. I, I haven't dealt directly with abduction uh, research. I've done a, a little bit of looking into UFOs, partially because uh, our founder, Edgar Mitchell, uh, founder of, of the Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, has, has publicly said many times that uh, he believes that uh, UFOs are here and maybe that extraterrestrial intelligence is here as well. So we, we've, as the research staff, we've had to at least learn enough so the, to realize uh, what he's talking about, and to come to our own conclusions about how we want to deal with it. So a couple of years ago, I wrote um, an article on this, the UFO enigma, and after reading a lot and talking to a lot of people, I 
I didn't come to quite as strong a conclusion as Edgar did, but I think I do agree that the, the UFO issue is a serious uh, topic that deserves serious study mm-hmm. because something's going on. I, I have my own take on it is that the something going on has a lot to do with consciousness itself uh, in a collective way, but that's just my my guess. Well, let me throw this at you and see what you think. Uh, my partner in this Paratopia mess is uh, uh, Jeff Ritzman, who is a an experiencer or, you know, I, I hate to use the word abductee. I don't think that really covers it. But mm-hmm. he says that in his life, the more you give, the more you get. And that if you think that this intelligence that we call aliens is aliens, then it will be aliens. If you think it's demonic, it'll act demonic. If you think it's Space Brothers, it'll act that way. It'll cater to your expectation. What does that say to you? If the, if, if we really are talking about uh, some sort of advanced intelligence, does that imply anything to you, just off the top of your head? Yeah, I think I think what he what he said is right. That uh, if you imagine that there is there are other forms of intelligence perhaps ones that are much bigger in some dimension than the way that we think of as big, uh, then if if an individual has an encounter with that kind of intelligence, the way it can express itself is through going crazy or through channeling or through feeling the presence of divinity or mystical experience or an abduction experience. Many, many different kinds of ways that it could express because it's like taking taking uh, 2,000 volts and trying to stick it through something that can only handle 100 volts. You know, it's, something's going to blow in the process. If you're lucky, it doesn't blow you up so much that you, you can't come back, but the effect of that encounter would certainly change you in some way. So I think maybe that's what's going on in these, this, these kinds of incidents. Let me turn this over here, in a way, to uh, one of our listeners, Sandy, who is a huge fan of yours. And I told him you were coming on the show, and, and if he had any questions, I would gladly ask you. And he has a few, so let me call them here. Uh, one of them is, he says, the spoon bend. Dr. Raiden blogged about being at a um, PK party and reports bending a spoon in a very decisive way, despite being skeptical about the possibility of macro PK. I'd like to mm-hmm. know more about this. How can this possibly fit into his worldview? Uh, he thinks we're all entangled at the quantum level, at least as far as our brains are concerned. Uh, do you know what he's talking about, and how does that fit into your worldview? Yeah, yeah. The spoon bending parties are are parties where people get together to bend spoons, and it's it's done in a, a lighthearted way with a lot of uh, laughter and so on. And uh, I had heard from some of my close colleagues that they had seen people do something which I considered to be probably impossible, namely to bend the bowl of a spoon in half just by pinching it between their fingers. And I was curious, of course, and, and pushed a little bit to uh, question my own beliefs because these are folks I knew that, that were pretty serious and also good observers. So I decided I, I needed to see this firsthand in order to accept it. Uh, and I attended a spoon-bending party, I think it was in 2000, with the intention of watching somebody closely who claimed to have been able to do this bending of a bowl of a spoon. And I was I also had a spoon and was holding it in the same way that she was and hoping to see her bend it. Uh, but instead, I ended up bending it. 
And so, of course, this, in retrospect, is a better experience because I can't deny my own experience. Uh, and I did have the presence of mind at the time to look immediately to see if there were indentations in my fingers to see if I had done it by force. And there weren't. There, were, there was no indication that I had done it by excessive force. Uh, in fact, later I went to get the same kind of spoon and to measure how much force is necessary to actually do the bend. And I had trouble with two pairs of pliers to reproduce the bend. And when I did do it, uh, the look of the bend is very different. You, you get uh, cracking and discoloration at the other side of the bend. Whereas in the spoon that I have, uh, it's completely smooth uh, around the bend. So I don't have a good explanation for what happened. They just know that it did happen. Um, in the meantime, uh, other colleagues have said things like if you take, I've taken a quarter inch aluminum bar, which tends to be very, very stiff, and you can easily see whether it's been bent by just rolling it on a flat surface, and they've bent that. And that's, that takes a huge amount of force to do that. So whatever's going on here is not requiring frank force. It's something else happening. Let me give you one more of his questions. Uh, the double slit attention slash intention experiment. He was doing some work to put meditators as the observers in a classic double slit experiment. I'd love to know more about that. Uh, is there more to know about that? Well, it's an experiment that's ongoing. I've been doing it for about a year and a half, and we have about another year and a half to go before I publish anything on it. The latest new thing that we've added onto this is that, first of all, we see that meditators do much, much better than non-meditators. I think the reason is that meditators simply are able to pay more attention to the task because almost all of the tasks that I ask people to do in the laboratory requires a certain degree of attention. Meditators are involved in attention training, so they're simply able to do it better. I think that's why they, they do psi experiments better as well. So we're looking at meditators being asked to uh, interfere with the an interference pattern in a double-slit device and the new element is that we're taking their EEG simultaneously. And what this allows us to do is look for correlations between EEG measures of attention and changes in the double slit pattern. And we've done a couple of sessions so far, and we are seeing correlations, which is really good because it means now we have an objective way of measuring what's going on in the mind side with the EEG and also objective measures on the, on the matter side in terms of what's happening in the double slit. And by able to look at the correlations on both sides, we're beginning to learn more about what mental states are best correlated with the, change, the physical changes that we see. And what that offers then is the possibility of using neurofeedback to train people to get into those states where we see the larger effects. So that's ultimately where I want to go, but that's that's more than a year away until we get to there. Hmm. And I guess my my final question to you is: Do you uh, deal at all with subtle body systems, chakras, kundalini energy, that sort of thing? Where does that fit in any of this discussion? Well, uh, of course, I'm all f I'm familiar with all those concepts, but I don't pay a whole lot of attention to it because uh, the form of of psychic phenomena that I'm interested in is non-local stuff. And whereas a lot of concepts having to do with subtle energy, which is related to chakras and so on, uh, that is more like close-up stuff. 
that's biofields and bioelectromagnetics and interactions between things that are relatively close. Uh, I'm more interested in, because it's more of a, a challenge to our, our, the scientific paradigm, I'm more interested in things that happen at a far enough distance so that uh, conventional ways of thinking about interactions, like bioelectromagnetics, those are much, much less likely as viable explanations. And so that, that's why I tend not to pay too much attention to body-related stuff, but more to mind-at-a-distance-related stuff. Well, Dr. Raiden, thank you very much for coming on the show. And um, I feel like we've accomplished something here it, it, just in that, again, you're like the most requested person I've, I've ever seen. So uh, I don't know. Well, I, I, <laughs> I don't know I if I did my that. part I, as an interviewer in this interview, <laughs> but, but you certainly did your part as the guest. So thank well, you. No, you, you asked very good questions. I've, I've done so many interviews I can't even count anymore. And uh, it's always refreshing to do an interview where the point of it is not simply to rehash evidence, because I've done that forever, but rather to get more into details on, well, what would, what would you think is the implication of this? And right. what about that? That's, to me, it's much more interesting because I'm beyond having to deal with evidence at this point, uh, even though that's what I do in the laboratory all the time. The, I think the more interesting questions is, well, why does it matter? Right. And that, that's really, that's the kind of questions you're asking, which I appreciate. Thanks very much. And to learn more about Dean Raiden and keep up on all of his doings, you can go to www.deanraiden.com to learn about the Institute of Noetic Sciences, of which he is a member, www.noetic.org. Noetic is spelled N-O-E-T-I-C, noetic.org, or deanraiden.com. For your fill of all things Dean Raiden. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. Hey, this is Stacy. This is Wes. Be sure to check us out on the Black Fridays podcast. Where we explore the esoteric one conversation at a time. You can check us out at www.theblackfridays.net. It's a little bit freaky. And we will see you there. Esoteric research and investigation into the enigmatic. Eerie Radio is a weekly podcast that features interviews with the world's leading paranormal researchers. Download episodes of Eerie Radio from your
your favorite podcatcher or directly from the show website at www.eerieradio.com. Eerie Radio. Listen. Learn. Laugh. Paratopia, it's me, it's me, it's J-A-V. That's right, I made a little rhyme there. Um, I feel like I botched asking about uh, what happens when we hit oneness, what happens to time. Um, And I think he basically got what I was asking, or at least knew what to compare it to, but do a little experiment here with me, will you? Hold your hand up sideways to your face. Not all the way to your face. Don't don't touch your nose with it or anything. But just hold your hand up sideways. And look at your fingers. And think of your fingers as you and your neighbors all traveling through time. So you start at the fingertip, and you end up at the hand. And once you hit the hand, you realize that it's all hand. There never were fingers. So therefore, the instruction to the fingers is the instruction of hand. And so that entire journey from fingertip to to hand didn't really take place. You see? You didn't actually get anywhere. And not only did you not go anywhere, but you now see that you thought you were an autonomous piece of finger, but now you see that it was the consciousness of hand all along. It's inseparable from you. And in fact, the only difference between you and hand was the fact that you, until you saw it, had the ability to block it out, to live in denial of the whole hand. And so I think that's roughly an analogy to saying that time is an illusion in the sense of once you're awoken to oneness, time is an illusion. The journey is an illusion. There was never a journey anywhere. And now the question, which is admittedly unanswerable. What happens to humanity when humanity comes to that oneness? Because we do tend to look at time linearly, of course, not, for instance, the Lakota, but but Westerners tend to look at time linearly. But if it's fingers on a hand, then starting at one end and going to the other was the illusion of a journey. You didn't actually arrive at oneness because oneness was always the case of you. And this gets back to something that that I've been talking about from day one on this show and on my other show, The Culture Contact, which is that because this is true, there is no inner spiritual journey that takes you to oneness, which is why meditations and forms of yoga and all this sort of guru stuff um, that people package and sell doesn't get you there. It doesn't get you to this sort of quote-unquote enlightenment because there is no journey. There's just being quiet, <laughs> quieting the brain-born self so that oneness can be the case. And so that the self-identity of that one being, let's say, um, becomes the case of you, is no longer blocked out by the brain. That's what it is. It's very simple. And yet, the hardest thing to do for thousands of years because There is no doing involved, and we are geared to do things. We are activity, and what's required here is complete stillness, uh, antithetical to what we are. We die when this happens, you see. And then in that moment of death, the one energy, the universal energy, whatever word you want to use, comes alive in the body, and 
these systems, these yoga maneuvers, these meditation so-called practices become the actions of the body. The body does what it needs to do to get healthy. And that's an individual process depending on how much damage you actually did to the body. Um, but so all of these things that, that people prepackage and sell to you as ways toward enlightenment uh, are actually things that unfold naturally in proper amounts to the health needs of your your body and whatever else goes with that psyche. And it unfolds after the fact. So after the fact of quote-unquote enlightenment comes this process uh, which gears you up for the next big enchilada, which is essentially merging with spirit or God self-awareness, if you will. That happens once the body is prepared uh, and can handle it, and so on and so forth. I'm sure you don't want me to spoil the journey for you. <laughs> or the non-journey, if you will. But anyway, um, and that's above and beyond, of course, the bounds of this episode about psi research. But I just wanted to clear that up. Now, every now and then... We get um, not just email from y'all, but um, we get comments actually on our direct link at the Podbean um, site, and we have the ability to post them or you know prove them or or delete them. And I usually delete the negative ones because unless they're, I think they're just like valid criticisms or something, or maybe I'm not quite sure what's being said. But every now and then you get one like this, which I will not approve. And this is from someone named Mike, who says of Emma Woods, This lady is way over the top. Setting up a website to attack Jacobs, recording phone calls without telling him? A person can sound very intelligent, as does this lady, but still have a deep mental health issue. A physical problem can be seen, but for some reason people think you're perfectly normal because you sound normal. I would say she is obsessive and without a doubt needs help, but not from an abduction investigator. This, to me, sounds like somebody on Jacob's payroll. And and I mean that sarcastically. I don't think Jacob's is putting people up to things like that. But it sounds like somebody who just is, is parroting what he's heard Jacob say. Recording phone calls without telling him? No. He was very much aware that the phone call was being recorded. Um, setting up a website to attack Jacob's? No, she set up a website to tell her story and even included him. That was the whole phone call to begin with, was like, what do you want me to say that makes us both look okay? Um, and he didn't want to do that because I guess he didn't trust it or what, whatever his feeling was on that. She's way over the top. Mm, I don't see it. I think that if you um, were hypnotized and convinced that aliens raped you and, you know, tried to drown you at one point or were hypnotized and uh, told that you have multiple personality disorder and that you need medication or were co-creating a story about hybrids with a therapist based on things that he was telling you about other clients of his while you were under hypnosis. I mean, these are the allegations, right? And so if true, what would be an over-the-top response to that? Is it over the top to try to get people to pay attention when nobody does because they all trust David Jacobs? So this is the problem with saying something like that is over the top. Uh, and whether or not she has deep mental issues, as Jeff and I have said over and over and over again ad nauseum, is not at stake here. It's not the issue. It doesn't matter, old friend. And it doesn't matter for the very reason that you 
put here, I would say she's obsessive and without a doubt needs help, but not for an abduction investigator. Well, Jacobs would say that too, wouldn't he? Uh, but he didn't, did he? So there's your problem. Suddenly she's crazy now because she's coming out with this stuff. Was she crazy then when she was working with him? Didn't seem so. Um, why didn't he? You know, we've been through this a million times. I don't have to say it again. Um, but anyway, so that's an example of something that doesn't make it through our smell test filter. Just in case you or someone you know is wondering why their comment wasn't posted. Um, that's one reason. The other reason would be if you're um, my cyber stalker. Because <laughs> that's the other person I refuse to post. Um, all right, I guess I just want to leave you on this controversial note, which is another thing for you to ponder. Dean Radin said that he thinks it's best that um, Western scientific minds and indigenous minds come together um, in some sort of synthesis that will ultimately um, promote compassion and understanding and new ways of manipulating reality or inventing things in reality, bringing forth new things into reality. Um, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that um, the inventing and the bringing into reality and all that stuff isn't important, and that the understanding and the compassion that sounds like the ideal baby of a marriage of minds like that um, is impossible because of what we said about oneness. Oneness is not a way of thinking. It's the ultimate mode when you stop trying to comprehend and stop trying to figure out and just stop, period. It becomes the case of you. It becomes the case of the brain. So when you hear people talk about oneness as though it's something that you can practice your way into or imagine um, stillness within you or go out into nature and just feel that good feeling you get in your gut when you're out amongst the trees and the stars or any of that sort of stuff. I mean, it's not that these things don't produce a, a feeling. Um, it's that that's that the type of oneness we're talking about here is something that is unshakable. It's not something that you can go in and out of. It ain't a fad diet of the mind. And in that oneness exists true morality, true compassion, true understanding, all of that, all of that flowers from the instruction, if you will, or truth, uh, of spirit self. It doesn't come from little self. It doesn't come from brain self, no matter how much brain self wants that. Uh, it always sets that stuff up as ideals, right? It says these are ideals. These are things that we aspire to on our best day, but we're, we're never going to be. And so we will do our best to incrementally get there but we never do get there because there's always setbacks because because there's always a push-pull of opposites and because ultimately the self doesn't want to get there because that would actually be the end of self. And there's another thing here, which is, I believe, the indigenous people, which again, um, everybody has their own little cultural faults and all of that stuff. I, I get that. But it seems from what I'm just hearing from the Kogi and from the Lakota that they do get the rational Western mind. It's almost like they get it, but they never used it in the way we use it, because to do that would bring them out of balance. Um, and so I think all of these... I'm, I'm just not convinced that these gadgets that we build and um, even housing... I mean, the things that we take for granted as great and that I love personally, I love 
having a house, and um, I enjoy computer and TV and all of that as much as I complain about them. In my heart of hearts, I'm not convinced that these are good things. I'm not convinced that they aren't a product of a brain out of whack, a soul out of whack. Um, and I think ultimately, at the end of the day, if we perish because of a brain out of whack, a soul out of whack, then none of this stuff was useful anyway. Because I think there's a self-fulfilling prophecy involved here, which is the brain either kills the self so that spirit self can become its case, or spirit self, through perhaps nature, perhaps our actions, however it unfolds, kills us. Because we're an Earth creature, and as far as we know, the only Earth creature that has the ability to usher in and live as the self-awareness of spirit, to live from the point of view of spirit and not the point of view of an animal, not the point of view of a rational beast, not the point of view of what we generally and erroneously call human nature, not the ego self, but spirit self. That's what we can do, and if we don't do it, we are a species unfulfilled, and we've completely denied ourselves and our, let's call it duty, to see this. It's not evolution that needs to occur. It's not a coming together of minds. It's a dissolution of self so that oneness can be the case. Or we die back and some other creature perhaps gets its shot at the, the title. I don't know. I mean, who knows? I just know we'll have failed and we'll suffer the repercussions. And that's not judgment. That's not, you know, that just, that's living by the mechanical, dying by the mechanical. So maybe it's time to give up the mechanical. So if Dean Radin or any scientist or sociologist studying this type of thing, looking into these types of issues and trying to make a study of it, make a synthesis of it, make something of it that we can bring into our rational world, um, I have a request, which is stop. Stop doing what you're doing, because making sense of it is how you run from it. This becomes your game of running from the oneness that you're talking about and that you're seeing and that you're studying and trying to flesh out and make uh, rational cases for. It's not that there isn't a rational component to it. It's that ultimately, as, as we said during the episode, it's something that needs to be lived lived as, not studied as, not studied about from the brain self perspective, because we don't need to be building up our knowledge base uh, to fortify the point of view in which we live currently. We need to not live this point of view, period. Not bring other things into it, even, even for what we think are good purposes. True understanding isn't studying that, it's being that. And you can't do that with everything, right? Some things you have to study. But this is exactly what must occur. So why are you studying and not being? It's all right there and you understand it. And yet, you go on ignoring it. We all do. Why are we doing this? I think that's the deal. I think it's death or it's death in the end. And so there's not going to be an ideal society. There's not going to be a great coming together of minds. And again, I think that, that all indications tell me that um, at least some of these indigenous folks get us 
and are being patient with us in a way that we do not get them and are not patient with them and would bowl them over. So that implies to me that indigenous mind is transcendent of rational hierarchical mind, which I know has been um, something that that's just sort of exploded on the message board as a big controversy. But I think George Hansen will have a lot to say about that next week that you'll find interesting. And I think our final guest on this show will show us exactly where we took a turn into rationality and how that was based on mistranslation and oversight regarding the poetry of the forefathers of rational thought. Um, I'm not going to say who our final guest is because I, I like to keep things in anticipation and so that's fun. But I just find it interesting that these final episodes are really unwittingly building upon each other. We might actually come to something here. We might actually come to an understanding in consciousness, if not the paranormal, um, by the end of this. Wow, didn't I say I didn't want to have this conversation during this episode? Um, well, what the heck. Please forgive me my indulgence. Thank you once again to Dean Radin. Uh, thank you, Peritopia, for listening. And Jeff Ritzman, love ya! Thank you for listening, too. You are listening, right, Jeff? Next week, George Hansen. And then there's two more to go. On this incarnation of Paratopia! Dun-dun-dun!